at uh, 8.17 on the evening of March 3, 1943. Bomb raid sirens screamed through the air above London. Workers and shoppers stopped on sidewalks and searched the skies. Buses came to a halt and emptied their passengers. Drivers screeched their brakes and stepped out of their cars. Gunfire could be heard in the distance. Nearby anti-aircraft artillery forces started launching a series of rockets. The throngs on the streets began to scream and, and some people threw themselves on the ground. Others just covered their heads and shouted, they're starting to drop them. Everyone looked above for enemy planes. The fact that they saw none did not dampen their hysteria. People raced, raced towards the Bethnal Green underground station where more than 500 citizens were already taking shelter and refuge there. In just 10 minutes, another 1,500 would try to join them. Trouble began when a rush of safety seekers reached the stairwell entrance all at the same time. A woman carrying a baby lost her footing on one of those 19 uneven steep steps leading down from the street. Her stumble interrupted the oncoming flow, causing a domino of others to tumble on top of her. Within seconds, hundreds of horrified people were thrown together, piling up like laundry in a basket. Matters worsened when the late arrivers thought they were being deliberately blocked from entering, which they weren't, of course. So they began to push all the more as they panicked. The chaos lasted for less than a quarter of an hour, but the damage was devastating. The disentangling of bodies took until midnight. In the end, 173 men women and children died, even though no bombs were ever dropped that night. That awful night, it wasn't missiles that killed people. It was fear. And boy, it's strange to be living in 2022 and know that there are people in the world right now that are experiencing those fears in a very real way. Fear can be such a devastating and damaging force. It's no wonder then that Nehemiah's enemies would try to use fear in particular as one of their final strategies to sabotage this rebuilding project. As we open to chapter 6, as we continue in this series, we see some good news when we open uh, to those first few words. The walls are pretty much completed. Other than a few doors to hang, you know, the, the walls are looking good. There's no gaps. It's almost fully completed. But this, of course, is upsetting to the likes of Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and all the other enemies of Judah who have not liked this project from the beginning. So they make this last-ditch effort to thwart this rebuilding project, and their main strategy Make Nehemiah afraid. When the word came to Sanballat, Nehemiah 6, verse 1, Tobiah, uh, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. 
Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. So first, they send out this friendly invitation to, me, to Nehemiah for, for him to come meet them on the plain of Ono. And that does not sound like a good place to have a meeting, doesn't it? I think there's a dad joke in there somewhere, but I couldn't come up with a good one. Mark, you were killing it with the dad jokes. I don't know where you went in, in your uh, welcome time. Getting better at them. Uh, but the plain of Ono was 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So if Nehemiah were to go meet them there, he would be in a very vulnerable position. And Nehemiah was smart enough to know that this was no friendly invitation. In fact, in the last part of verse 2, it says, but they were scheming to harm me. He knew what was up. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is the king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. So when the first invitation didn't work, Sanballat dips into his hat of tricks to try and find an approach similar to what proved successful in the past. When the Judean exiles first returned to Jerusalem, as it's uh, documented in the book of Ezra, they began rebuilding the temple, if you remember. And this also didn't make the, the enemies of Judah very happy. They felt threatened. They didn't want to see them prospering and rebuilding their temple and their city. So they sent word to King Artaxerxes saying that the returnees are building in Jerusalem in order to rebel against the king. And Artaxerxes puts a stop to the rebuilding project because of that letter, which is also amazing. We talked about this in the very first chapter, why it was King Artaxerxes who's still in charge that approves this building of the wall when Nehemiah is on the scene. So even though what Sanballat's messenger is telling is a lie, this could be a lie that the king might believe. He believed it in the past. But again, Nehemiah is not falling for any trap. He's not going to give in to fear. And I just love how he responds next. He says, I sent him this reply, verse 8. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. And then he goes on to conclude. They were all trying to frighten us thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. They were all trying to frighten us. That was their goal. That was their intent. Make Nehemiah terrified. But what does Nehemiah do when someone tries to instill fear in him? He simply, calmly prays, God, Give me strength. If you came to church this morning with some fears that 
have been trying to settle in your heart. Facing a a frightening situation, maybe it's work-related, the fear of of failing at a task you have at work. Maybe it's health-related, fear of a prognosis. Maybe it's money-related, fear of making ends meet. Maybe it's family-related, some relationships are tense. You're worried about the negative influences on your kids that maybe it'll lead to unwise choices. Whatever it is that might be trying to frighten you, whatever fears are trying to settle in your heart, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I could give you is to simply spend time asking God for strength. I know that probably sounds cliche, too on the nose, Darren. Maybe you're thinking, can you give me something meatier, more profound, more creative than that? And just to say, pray to God when you're feeling afraid. Will that really make a difference? Well, it did to one very special little girl. I can remember when Leela, my youngest daughter, was starting preschool when we were living back in Ohio. She had gone to daycare for a few years, and she was used to, you know, being dropped off at a teacher and with with other kids there, but this was a whole new school. It was a big class, new teacher, new classroom, new friends to make, and she was a little, a little nervous about it. I would be too. And as is most often the case in our family, Wisdom for how to deal with the situation came from my wonderful wife, Bimi. On the morning of Leela's first day of preschool, Bimi went up into her room and scrounged around and found this really beautiful pink-colored rock. Leela loved to collect rocks. In fact, she still loves to collect rocks. I am constantly finding rocks in the house and releasing them back into the wild. Uh, this was one of those rocks that uh, you know, you get those little geology sets and you, and you um, pick at them for a long time. And you get these nice little smooth, colorful, different kinds of gems in there. And you got a chart to tell you what they are. I think it was one of those. It was this beautiful, light pink colored rock, very smooth. And, and Beamy brought it down and she said, Leela, I know you're a little nervous today to, to, to start preschool, but I want you to let you know I got something special for you to take to class with you. It's this rock. This is your special rock that will help you to be brave. So what you're going to do, you're going to take this rock and you're going to hold it tightly in your hand. And, and if you get tired of holding your hand, maybe put it in your pocket. But every time that, that you feel nervous or get, get scared or shy, just, just grab onto that rock and hold it real tight. And remember that Jesus, your rock, is with you, giving you strength to be brave. And so we went to school to drop off Leela together uh, before Beamy had to go to work. And there she had her pink rock tightly Uh, clasped in her hands off to school. I came to pick her up. Bimi was still at work, so I had the privilege of picking her up after school, and I saw as I drove up her sitting there with all of her classmates with her hand like this, ran over to the car all excited and this big smile on her face, still with the rock in her hand. She had held it the entire day. I asked her, hey, Leela, how was school? Oh, Daddy, it was so great. It was so great. You know, I was shy and I, and I was scared at first, but I, I just held that rock and I prayed to Jesus and I asked him to help me be brave. And you know what? God answered my prayer. I made so many new friends today. Had so much fun. Oh, when you pray for God to give you strength and courage, it makes a difference. I know it sounds cliche, but it does. Your fears become less frightening when you ask God for his strength in your life. 
Now, I understand, family, that fears don't go away overnight. I, I want to be very clear on something. This dependence on God's strength and praying for it and learning to rely on it, it's a process, a process of a lifetime. At least it's the way it feels for me. It's not like just one prayer you make and all your fears magically are gone. In fact, Leela took that rock back with her the next day and the next after that. Eventually, she didn't need it anymore, but it was a process of learning to pray for and rely on the strength of God. I've been rereading through a good book this week because of uh, the uh, topic I knew we'd be talking about today. It's called What Women Fear. And guys, it's a really great book for you too. It's by Angie Smith. Angie is the wife of Todd Smith, who is the male vocalist in Selah, who was here we had uh, at, at uh, Christmas time. In her opening chapter, she talks about how learning to depend on God as we face fears is a process. She, in fact, describes it more specifically as a balancing act. I just want to read a few paragraphs from her opening chapter because I think they really help us put in perspective this process. I'm not going to beat you over the head with a five-pound Bible and tell you that if you truly love the Lord, you would never fear. I don't think that's realistic. Yes, the Lord desires for you to be free from the bondage of fear, but it isn't reasonable to say that you will never have fear again in your life if you are a good Christian. I have had people make me feel this way, probably without even knowing, and it hurt me deeply. For the remainder of this book, I want to encourage you to change your thinking about fear. Instead of it being a black and white, you do or you don't, you succeed or you fail kind of issue, I want to propose that it's more of a balancing act than anything else. I don't think I'm a failure because I have had fears, and I certainly don't think that it is a requirement for Christians to forego fear in order to be good followers of Christ. I believe fear is the natural response to the question Satan whispered in the garden. She spends this whole few pages going through how Adam and Eve hid because they were afraid and talking about how Satan planted that seed of doubt to lead to being fearful. So she says, I believe fear is the natural response to the question Satan whispered in the garden. And I find that every day I have to adjust my footing consciously to move toward Jesus. In my mind's eye, I see a woman teetering on a tightrope, holding a long pole as she tries to balance herself in light of the truth of God. It takes concentration, it takes work, and it takes a whole lot of faith and prayer. I have heard it said that God is like the net in this example, that he will catch us if we fall, that he is our safe place, that we need not fear because we always have that waiting if things get bad enough. I don't disagree, she says. But I think that many of us have put our emphasis on the net rather than the pole in our hands. We have access to him here, in the moment, in every situation that arises. The more we tap into the life balanced by Christ, grounded in knowing him through prayer and his word, the less we have to worry about falling off. It's still scary up there, no question. But if we can get a firm grip on that which steadies us, it will look different. I think that's a good description of the process of dealing with fears. It's a balancing act. And family, I think one of the most effective ways to get a firm grip on the one who steadies us is to make Nehemiah's prayer our continual prayer. God, give me strength. Well, Sanballat was not going to give up so easy. 
He makes another attempt to instill fear into the heart of Nehemiah after his first one seems to fail. Verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, the son of Mehatabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us uh, close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me. Same Greek, or Greek word, Old Testament. Same Hebrew word as the one to frighten, to make afraid. He had been hired to make me afraid, to intimidate me, so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name and discredit me. Shemaiah tells Nehemiah that his enemies are coming to kill him. In fact, they're coming to kill him that night. So he says, what you got to do is you got to come with me over to the temple. We're going to close the doors and we're going to seek asylum there. Again, notice the goal. He does this in order to threaten, to terrify, to frighten Nehemiah. Because they know that if, if they can scare him enough, that he is going to react poorly and commit this sin. Now, it's not saying that it is a sin to be fearful. What they're talking about here is Nehemiah taking refuge in the temple would be a sin because he is not a priest. So he would have not been permitted to enter the temple in this way. It's possible that Shemaiah was himself permitted to enter the temple since he was of Delaiah's family. That's an important detail because in Ezra chapter 2, we see that there is a Delaiah family member who is part of the Levites. And in 1 Chronicles 24, there's also a Delaiah family member who's a priest. So maybe it was okay for him. And he's trying to tempt Nehemiah to come. But Nehemiah knows that it would not be okay. It would be deliberately disregarding God's law. And he would actually have been guilty of committing a capital offense if he were to go. You can see why Tobiah and Sanballat wanted him to go. Maybe this could, this could be Nehemiah's demise if he goes that, and we would be able to keep our, ourselves at arm's length. But once again, Nehemiah does not fall for the ruse, for the temptation. In fact, I love how he responds to the second attempt to try and scare him by saying, how can a guy like me do that? Should someone like me run and hide? Hide in the temple. No way. Now, this is not a moment of, of arrogance on Nehemiah's part. He's not saying, I'm some brave and, and courageous guy. Look how awesome and strong I am. In fact, I think in this moment, I would contend that he is expressing fear. Just not fear over what Tobiah is threatening him. In case you forgot from last week or were not here, let me remind you the kind of guy Nehemiah is. He's the kind of guy, remember, that said, I, I am not going to be treating you the way all the other governors treat you because, why? Because I fear the Lord. Nehemiah is the kind of person who fears God. 
In other words, he's the kind of guy who lives each day standing in awe of his maker, who spends his time letting his breath be taken away by the holiness and power and goodness of the king of kings. He reserves his astonishment for God and God alone. That's the kind of guy he is. So he says, how can I? And I would have had someone who fears God act like that. I think herein lies the way, the, the second way Nehemiah helps us address our fears today. And that is by focusing on fearing God. I love these words from Oswald Chambers. I think it really puts this in perspective. He says, it is the most natural thing in the world to be scared. And the clearest evidence that God's grace is at work in our hearts is when we do not get into panics. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Sometimes I think we spend way too much time and attention on the fears of this world and not enough time on fearing God. Our astonishment and awe is too often reserved for things that, that don't deserve it at all. I mean, just, just turn on your social media, flip on the news. We're obsessed with, with things that, that, that make us scared in this world. And, and I'm not saying that we bury our heads in the sand, but what, where we need to have our awe and astonishment towards is not the things in this world that scare us, but in our God and Creator. Did you notice how throughout the text, Nehemiah doesn't seem to waste much time giving attention to what people are trying to frighten him with? Come on. Come to the plains of Ono and meet us there. And he's like, no, nah, I, I got work to do. The king is going to think that you're trying to revolt. No, he's not. You're just making that up in your head. I ain't going to work. I ain't going to spend any time worrying about what you're talking about. Your life is in danger. Come hide in the temple. No, I'm fine. I'm not going to go there. And then notice how this chapter ends. Verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, in, the, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were what? Afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. The enemies of Judah tried so hard to frighten Nehemiah, but in the end, they are the ones who are left afraid because they see how God has helped accomplish this work. Nehemiah's message to us is this. Don't spend time being in awe of the scary things in this world. Be in awe of the one who created it. Don't come to the temple because you are scared of what's outside of it. Come to the temple because you fear the one you will encounter in it. I love these words from Mike Iaconelli. This was an article he posted online a number of years ago called The Safety of Fear. He says this, I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again, a place where God continually has to tell us, fear not, a place where our relationship with God is not a simple belief or doctrine or theology. It is God's burning presence in our lives. I am suggesting that the tame God of relevance be replaced by the God whose very 
presence shatters our egos into dust, burns our sins into ashes, and strips us naked to reveal the real person within. The church needs to become a gloriously dangerous place where nothing is safe in God's presence except us. Nothing, including our plans, our agendas, our politics, our money, our security, our comfort, our possessions, our needs. Our world is tired of people whose God is tame. It is longing to see people whose God is big and holy and frightening and gentle and tender and ours. A God whose love frightens us into his strong and powerful arms where he longs to whisper those terrifying words, I love you. That's why we come to church, right? I gotta tell you, family, these, as you can tell, words rocked my world this week. I read this quote over and over, and every time I did, I could sense God's invitation. Darren, stop being in such awe of the scary things in this world. Spend time being in awe of me. Put your focus there. Family, Fear may fill our world, but it doesn't have to fill our hearts. It will always be knocking on the door. Just don't invite it in for dinner. And for goodness sake, don't offer it a bed to stay the night. Instead, keep praying to God for strength and spend your days fearing I'm thinking of that phrase, if you're not in it, I don't want it. Lord, help us not to get in awe of the other things in this world, but to live our life in awe of you. We want nothing else but to know you deeper. Thank you, Lord, as we get to know you more deeply, we learn that you're a God who wants to help us with our fears more than any other command in your word was to help us face fear, to be at peace, to not be alarmed, to fear not, to take courage. May we do that as we get to know you more and more each and every day. Amen.